So if you don't know, we've, we've already had to run out of space. And we didn't want to go to a double meeting. It just didn't feel it would be the right thing for us. And uh, so we knew we needed a bigger venue. So we thought, maybe we must go look in the southern suburbs somewhere. There must be space out there. And uh, then someone gave us a prophetic word. It was actually you, Cap. Did you know that? You gave us this prophetic word. Stay urban, not suburban. Stay urban, not suburban. So I was like, okay, not the verbs. But then I looked at the city, and I've known so many church leaders who've spent years scouring that city for a decent venue. And every venue's taken up. That's the feeling. So I was like, oh no, there's no place there. And, and, then, and then Dave Child is back again today. I've been sitting for a few weeks, going to see him. Um, he had a prophetic word. He lives in time of whatever God was going to do. It was going to be this interesting juncture of traditional and non-traditional. You know? And he saw a steeple of a church, and that's how God spoke to him through this. So, so we were praying a prayer, or the one I was praying at least was this. God, um, I have no faith for a venue, um, but if you're going to give us one, it's going to fall out the sky. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and we were praying that prayer, and uh, near the end of last year, someone just happened to talk to um, Ricky, who is the leader of the uh, Cap in town. He's the oldest church in the country, 350 years old. And uh, they have got this amazing hall in Tooth Road, right behind Tiger's Mill. The entrance is next to Tiger's Mill. And uh, they had never hired out to a church before on a Sunday. They said no to any church that asked. And they just happened to change their minds. And more or less at the same time, we mentioned that we needed to be One thing led to another. And as of next week, we will be the interesting merger of the most traditional city in the country, uh, partnering with one of the least traditional churches. So, praise God. The venue is, um, it's, it, I'll tell you how you find it. There's the Lifestyle Center, where you might want to go for parking. And, uh, and then across the road from it, there's Tiger's Milk and there's Postnet. The entrance is literally between the two. Postnet, Tiger's Milk. Okay, you can go to Tiger's Milk restaurant, not there, skip a meter to the right. There we go. That's, that's where it's going to be. And uh, we just want to apologize in advance. We expect teething pains. Like, I'm not sure what's going to happen with all of us looking for parking next week. Uh, you know, and uh, this week we're in all panic state. He's trying to get the venue ready. But as you come next week, just come with your eyes open to ways that we can utilize the space in the future. So we're enlisting your help. But we are very excited. We feel like God has given us a venue that can take us to the next stage in our church. And back then it's in such a lovely part of the city. My mom was telling me, Tooth Road is the 26th coolest street on planet Earth. Come on, come on, work that out. It's slightly less cool than we're there. Maybe 27 coolest now. I'm, I'm busy in a series at the moment called Remember Jesus. What a great way to start the year. Remember Jesus. It comes from 232 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. That's the verse that we're preaching on last week, this week, and the next two weeks. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my, my gospel. It's amazing how um, other things can get more interesting to us. Uh, how many conversations have you had this week about Harry and Meghan? <laughs> if you haven't, uh, it's because your wife hasn't been reading the book. She finished it yesterday. And uh, everybody's talking about Harry, about Harry fever. Think about people I hang out with, and you think, what, what did we just talk about the whole time? Uh, we spoke about cars, technology, investments, We're like days. That's what we spoke about. We've got away with guys. And it, it, other things easily get more interesting to us. 
the authors of the book, the Jesus Manifesto, say, what is Christianity? It is Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. Christianity is not an ideology, not a philosophy. It is good news that beauty, truth, and goodness are found in a person. Biblical community is founded and found on the connection to that person. Conversion is more than a change in belief or a change in direction. It's a change in connection. The authors say this. The major temptation of the church today is not ADD, but JDD. Jesus deficit disorder. And yet the authors say all other things, including things related to him and about him, are eclipsed by the sight of his peerless word. Knowing Christ is eternal life, and knowing him profoundly, deeply, and in reality, as well as experiencing his unsearchable riches, is the chief pursuit of our lives. <clears throat> Speaking about Harry, uh, while we were worshipping, I just remembered a little caveat uh, that Junie shared. She read it to me of how he first met Megan. It was an Instagram in some house in California, and he's flipping through. And he says by that point, he'd met about 100,000 people, one to one. And you know, he, he more or less would see them and they never think about them again. And he says, as he saw Megan's face, he says, like, time stood still. And he just became transfixed by this face. And he thought, if I could be with this person, the rest of my life is sorted. <laughs> uh, it didn't take quite like that, but, you know, was the effect. And uh, one article I read on this particular excerpt said, at that point, you got one-itis, the belief that this is the one, one-itis. And, um, and uh, I was thinking about my journey. I was going through life, flipping through Instagram, you know, meeting people, doing stuff. When I was 16 years old and across the screen of my life came Jesus Christ. I mean, I'd heard about Jesus before. But something happened on one particular evening when I was 16 years old where I heard a message about Jesus. And in a moment, the eyes of my heart were opened up and I, a hardcore gaze of the person that would consume me for the rest of my life. I've never lost interest in him. He becomes more interesting. <laughs> he becomes bigger. Of course, I'm distracted like you. We, we, you know, other things take us for a moment, but then we, we read the Bible. Remember Jesus Christ. Of course, don't forget to keep your eyes on, on Jesus. And uh, we thought it would be a great way to start the year that we remember Jesus. That, that, you know, single church is all about Jesus. And um, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. As I was pondering that verse, the, the word that I was particularly, you know, thinking about this week is the word Jesus there. Because, because the word Jesus there reminds us that there was a person 2,000 years ago that walked the planet. Whose name was Jesus. His mom and his dad named him that because an angel told them to. You, you see, the interesting thing about Jesus is, in a sense, there's two stages to Jesus. There's the Jesus in the Gospels, when he actually lived on the planet. And then there's the Jesus who is now in glory. The Jesus in the Gospels, the Jesus who walked the planet, and the Jesus who is in glory. If you think about the words we often sing, we often uh, home in on him in glory. He is, you know, my cornerstone, my, you know, my saviour, the judge, the sustainer, the king. These are big titles for who Jesus presently is. Sometimes we've got to go back and remember that, that, that he's not just seated on a throne in glory. We've got to connect this person we're worshipping to the same person that we read about in the, in the Gospels. In this verse in Hebrews 13, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, so, so when we worship him, we've got to remember who he is, not just his titles. And um, there's so much about Jesus' life that I've been thinking about lately. But there's two points that have 
really grab my attention and I want to speak about them to you. It's Jesus' humility and Jesus' passion for people. Jesus' humility and Jesus' passion for people. Firstly, I want to speak about Jesus' humility. And the verse that I'm thinking about is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. It says, Your attitude should be like that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uh, this week we were playing 30 seconds as a family, just before the lights were going out at 8 o'clock. Like they do every night, it feels like we're out of I would get to bed a little earlier, thank goodness. Um, but but um, Eli was trying to explain Joel. Did you know what I say the word Joel? So his partner had to guess what it was. So, so he was pointing to his face and the person was saying cheek, chin. So Eli said this. He said, it starts with the same letter as the name of our God. <laughs> Jesus, Joel. It just struck me again. And just go back 2,000 years ago, you've got a guy walking around. The chance is that thousands of years later, a little boy in Cape Town, not to say he's growing up, he's become a sturdy young man, would say, the name of, that, that guy is the name of our God. And God walking around this, you know, not such a wealthy guy in Palestine, which was the outfit of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. It's quite a, it's a dramatic play. And yet Christianity claims that the creator of the universe condescended to take on flesh and suffer at the hands of, and for the sake of his creatures. And, uh, and uh, you know, he was fully human. Let's not miss that he was fully human. He wasn't this mystical drifter appearing out of the fog. He was a real person who sometimes experienced bone-deep exhaustion and famishing hunger. Uh, he relished food and wine in the company of friends. He breathed, he walked, he perspired, he slept, he cried, he laughed. Experienced sexual desire like any other man of his age. Fully human. Interestingly, within a hundred years of the church, you know, carrying, coming to the gospel and believing in Jesus Christ, uh, they quickly took to the idea that he was God, but struggled to reconcile it to his humanity. And a heresy took off in the early church called Docetism, which basically means Jesus just looked like he was human. If you had a closer look, his feet were suspended an inch above the ground. <laughs> his foot, he wasn't really one of us. And um, it does boggle the mind. Last week, my friend Paul, who leads Common Ground in town, him and his wife kindly came to our church on this Sunday off. He was telling me about a Muslim man, an ex-Muslim man, who's in his community, who came to faith a few years ago. Very wealthy Muslim man in the city of Cape Town. And this Muslim man he took particular delight in, you know, mocking Christians for their ridiculous belief that the sustainer of the universe needed to be sustained by food. What an absurd thought that the majestic creator and king would become subject to the forces of his creation. Absurd. And, uh, you know, and, and, and in fact, he gets this idea from the Quran. There's a verse in the Quran that says, they, referring to Christians, do blaspheme you say God is Christ the son of Mary. Christ the son of Mary has no more, was no more than an apostle. His mother was a woman of truth. They both had to eat their daily food. 
like anybody who eats food can't be God. Yeah. How can you be the sustainer and yet need to be sustained? And anyway, this guy took quite, quite a lot of delight in this. And, you know, and one time he was actually speaking to his dad about these idiot Christians. How can they believe this blasphemy? And he was saying to his dad, he was saying to his dad, you know, what does it say about a God that he could die on a cross? Suddenly the question changed in his mind to, what does it say about God that he would die on the cross? And he suddenly thought, hang on, we all know that there's nothing more loving than being willing to lay down your life for another. And in a moment, he had his own inner glimpse of Jesus Christ. And he got converted by his own criticism of Christianity. <laughs> his dad was so upset by his conversion that very wealthy father hired three of the top mullahs in the country to spend three days with him to try to talk some sense into him, but they could not pull him back from this discovery that God had condescended in Jesus Christ. These, these very words, Philippians 2, your attitude should be like that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What is blasphemous for the Muslim is glorious for the Christian. God entered his creation to serve his creatures. And this verse, you, might, you may have read it before, but it's meant to take your breath away. I mean, look at the two phrases that are juxtaposed, brought together. The one who is in the very nature of God, that's what it says, took on the very nature of servant. I mean, the parallel is striking. God, servant. And by the way, there are two words in Greek for servant, because uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. There's the servant who has rights. Who's a diakonos, and then there's the other who has absolutely no rights. They're the lowest of the low. They are doulos. You can guess which word is used there. The God, um, who, the one who has the nature of God, took on the nature of a doulos. A doulos. He made himself nothing. God in Christ became a slave. So you got this Christ in glory, the creator, the sustainer, the judge, and then you've got Jesus in the Gospels, who is. A slave willing to put humanity's good before his own glory. You've heard this story before. It's, it's one that, if you hear enough times, it's, it might lose its, its luster. Just because you've heard, you, you become desensitized to something you've heard many times. But in the history of the world, it was a brand new idea. In fact, you might know that in the Western world, humility is seen as a value. The fact that you would you would serve your equal. It, it's, a, it's a value. A person who is full of themselves, then that's not good. And this idea has been around for a while. The question is, where did it come from? Well, if you look in, the, in all the ancient writings, it starts in the New Testament. You see, before the New Testament written about Jesus, humility was something you give to the gods and you give to great people. You know, you got in your face before Caesar and you said, Caesar is Lord. But you would never humble yourself to an equal. And you would never humble yourself to someone beneath you. In fact, the chief goal of the ancient world, if it was an honor culture, you would pursue honor for yourself and for your family. And the first writings in history to emphasize humility over honor are these New Testament texts. 
And at the heart of the universe is the one who values humility above status, service over power, and generosity over privilege. It's a brand new idea. And at first Christians were mocked for it, but eventually it took root. And once it got into the world, by the 300s, it's just, you know, taken root and become part of a, a Western instinct, if you will. And the cool thing about the Philippians 2 passages is that as we humble ourselves, God honestly humble. Yeah. You know, people used to go, well, hang on, if I pursue humility, then I forsake honor. Mm. And, and, and Paul says, hang on, think about this. You humble yourself, God will honor you. Oh. Because straight off, it's just, you know, God, Jesus is the very nature of God. He humbles himself. He becomes a human. He becomes a servant to the human. And he dies as a human. And not only that, he dies the, the most horrible kind of death that was imaginable. There's no more humiliating thing than dying on a cross in the ancient world. It was, a, it was the most dehumanizing experience a person could have. You're naked in front of mockers. You die slowly as people mock you. Not just the soldiers. Walk by as mock you. That humility. It's like he's going lower, lower, lower. At bottom of the lower. And then suddenly it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God promises to, to um, honor the humble. It's another verse that says, Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and in due time, he will lift you up. You know, when you go through a humiliating experience, your pride is literally being, not literally, figuratively being crucified. It's agonizing. And you just want to hold on to your dignity. And uh, Paul, uh, Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Stay low. Let this painful experience do its work. Humiliating experiences are... A, Brilliant ways to bring about greater humility in your life. There's, there's a humility that you can you can grow in. You know, the Bible says, humble yourselves. But then there's a humility that God allows through the circumstances that come to you. You're full of yourself, but often experience like that. Someone abandoning you, rejecting you, people turning against you, the things they're saying about you. Humiliating experiences. Just agonizing. And yet God can do through them things that can do no other way. But His plan is to bring you to a place where you are more Christ-like. So that He can lift you up in due time. So that whatever honor He brings to you in the world doesn't go to your head. Because you're now humbled before God and before people. And uh, I think it's so important that single church, we stay humble. We stay humble. It feels like God's doing wonderful things in our midst. Praise God. But we, give, we boast in God, not in ourselves. We stay humble. And I think it's so important that we become more humble. You know, it's cool that we can be in God's presence, but when, when people come to signal, I think they need to not just see the presence of God, they need to hang out with the people and go, wow, those people are properly down to earth. There's no airs about them. They're not pretentious people. They're down to earth. They're humble people. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you what else. You know, moving into the city of Cape Town, we are, we are doing what Jesus did. You know, God left the comfort of heaven 
and moved into the city. He moved down to earth. He, he took on flesh. He became one of the people. So even as we're in the city of Cape Town, we need to become more interested in Cape Town. We are interested in the culture of Cape Town. We're interested in the people of Cape Town. We're interested in the needs of Cape Town. We're not just doing our thing in the city space. We come as servants of Cape Town. Yeah? I think that would be an important thing that we, that we do as, as a church. We are here to serve the city. We have to serve the city. That, that, that just our presence in the city means we are contributing to, the, to what the city is becoming. We become as servants. Okay, that's my first thing. Jesus is humility. I mean, it blows me away. The, the second thing that I've been thinking about as I've been reading the Gospels again, and I've also been reading a book called uh, The Doctor's Guide to Jesus. I recommend it by an Australian author who's relocated to Chicago now, John Dixon. The Doctor's Guide to Jesus. You can get it on Kindle. Listen to this verse. Jesus' passion for people. Verse not Matthew chapter 10, verse 36. When Jesus saw... The crowd. I often uses that language, Jesus saw. He actually looked. He saw the crowds. People tend to be invisible to us because we're so busy going from point A to point B. But, but Jesus' life was the people everywhere he was going. The people were not in his way. The people is where he was going. Jesus saw the crowds and Jesus became desensitized to them because there were so many of them and their needs were so great. Matthew chapter 10, verse 36. That's what it says. If, you, if you're listening to this on audio, that's not what it says. The people are looking at the screen at the moment. What it actually says is when Jesus saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word, compassion, I can't remember exactly the Greek word, but I'm going to try to show off, and I'm more or less remembering what it is. Splachnistos mes. It's probably not how you pronounce it at all. And uh, it literally means gut-wrenched. Your guts are wrenched. Jesus had a gut-wrenching experience when he looked at people. His compassion was not an idea in his head. It was something he felt in his body. If we have any doubt that God's heart is an open wound of love, not made, not made of stone, we need but look at Jesus' deep care for the people he encountered in his few years of ministry. I mean, you've got four Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark's Gospel, take that for example. Flip through the pages of Mark's Gospel and notice his concern for crowds. I mean, every page you've got these wonderful and pressing crowds rallying around Jesus. They gather around his healing touch, his amazing teaching, his liberating power. But not just once or twice in Mark, uh, Mark's Gospel, but in every chapter it seems, I give, I give you four examples. Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 4. So Mark chapter 1. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. Mark chapter 2. Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. That's a particularly interesting story. He withdraws because he's heartbroken about the loss of his cousin John the Baptist. He's so heartbroken, he feels like he can't, he can't do it anymore. He needs some time on his own. He goes away to get a quiet place just to deal with his own grief. And these crowds follow him. 
and he ministers to them. Mark chapter 4. Then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered. Again Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And on and on in Mark's gospel. You see Jesus' heart stretching wide to people. Why does Jesus love the crowds? Precisely because he sees people in the crowds. We might get the impression Jesus is interested in numbers. You know, he's more excited about the fact that today there's 200 people gathered around him in the 12 or the 15 from yesterday. No, no, no. Jesus is not ministering to faceless crowds. I mean, again, Mark's gospel shows us Jesus is interested in every person in the crowd. Mark chapter 2. He ministers to a paralyzed man who takes up his man in front of the crowd after dropping in front on Jesus from a torn open ceiling. Mark chapter 5, he ministers to a woman with the issue of blood who sneaks up to him in the crowd. Did you know that story? People are pressing around him, trying to touch him, and there's a woman who has had um, bleeding for 12 years, if I recall. I can't remember the exact number. 18 years, 12 years, one verse. 12, eh? Whatever. Mark 5, sorry. And, uh, and she touches him, and in an instant she's healed. And Jesus says, whoa, stop! Stop! Somebody touched me. Power went from out of my body. He's interested in the, in the one person who touched him with faith and with love. Mark 7, the deaf man whom Jesus takes away from the crowd to minister to. Here's Jesus' words. The first words he hears. Mark chapter 10, a blind man whose first sight is Jesus. Jesus loved the crowd because he loved individuals. Jesus loved the crowd of 300 people 300 times more than he loved just one person. He saw people. And that's why he would so often in the story zoom in on an individual. Luke chapter, Luke chapter, um, goodness, Luke chapter 19. You've got Jesus and he's walking through Jericho. We're told that he's actually in a hurry. He's in a hurry this one time. He's not, always, he's not in a hurry usually, but he's in a hurry to go through Jericho. And this crowd's watching him and he's passing through in the corner of his eye, he spots a tax collector. There's a man that nobody likes in those days. A short man who can't see over everyone's shoulders just climbing the sycamore tree. He stops. And he looks at this man and he calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down! We're going to have a meal. And he invites himself to lunch with Zacchaeus. By the end of that experience, Zacchaeus is a changed man. I mean, even, even... On the cross, there's a little incident where he looks at his heartbroken mom, he realizes she's been stripped of, of a son. And then he looks at one of his disciples and, and, and he says, you guys take each other as mother and son. And then on the cross, he's still got time for the, the one person who's been crucified next to him. The criminal. He gives care to that person. And uh, Jesus noticed everybody. He noticed incredibly powerful people. He wasn't impressed with their power, but he noticed them too. He noticed wealthy people. He wasn't impressed with their wealth. Jesus never wanted anything from anyone. It's what he had to give them. It's what the change that he wanted to bring about in their lives. But let's also notice that Jesus particularly saw people that nobody else in society saw. He, he, he would make time for the bottom feeders of society, if you will. The dirty, the disfigured, those afflicted with sickness, the blindness, rotten skin, the deformed, the hemorrhaging woman, the lunatic and possessed, the abandoned and the hungry who begged for bread on the streets, the women who were used, abused and thrown out like trash, the small unimportant people, widows and orphans, prostitutes and the homeless, the despised rich 
and the despairing poor, the very young and the very sick. Jesus received all of these people. He felt their hurt and he reached out to heal. And one of Jesus' famous titles is, was given to him by his enemies, his critics. He's a friend of sinners. Which is fascinating, by the way, because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that he is the judge of sinners. One day everybody, whether you know him or not, can stand before Jesus and going to judge you for your sin. What a juxtaposition that the judge of sinners is also the friend of sinners. You see, the reason he got this name is the Pharisees, who were the very, um, you know, they were like, um, they, they were a religious group that were very big on religious externals and personal holiness. And they basically had a rule, you don't, uh, you don't socialize and fraternize with sinful people. Sinful people that are not actually welcome to synagogue anymore because of their dubious sexual past. Maybe they're prostitutes. Uh, it could be their tax collectors or their friends with these people. No, no, you don't even have those people around for the simple reason that the Pharisees have taken all of these Old Testament laws of, of staying clean. And they were nervous that they, they, were nervous they just touched an unclean person. The unholiness of that person would be transformed, transferred to them. And when Jesus came, even though he had some criticisms about how we, you know, what we do with our bodies and sex and what we do with our money and generosity, he still would socialize with these people. We're told that he would literally drink with them. He'd have a good time with them. What was it? What was Jesus doing? Didn't he know about the danger of unholiness spreading from these people to him? And then you realize he's genius. His genius was that he knew that holiness was stronger than unholiness. That mercy was stronger than brokenness. He knew that if he touched them, it wouldn't be their unholiness that would transfer to him. It would be his holiness that would transfer to them. He was hallowing the people in his life. What does this mean for single church? Well, it means... That we are a church that share Jesus' passion for people. We're not interested in numbers. We're interested in people. Interested in people. And um, I was chatting to some friends who went to a new church uh, last year. And they said they went to this church. It was so wonderful. The worship was amazing. The preaching was so exciting. They were feeling this is the church for them. And then the meeting ended, and they stood around, and nobody came and spoke to them. Now, of course, all of the people around them were friendly people. But something went wrong on that particular Sunday. There was enough for them to go, geez, these people are aloof. They're not interested in people. They're interested in something else. And um, no doubt, many people will visit Signal and have that experience. But try not let it be because of you. <laughs> Let's be, just look out for new people. Let's make them feel welcome. And uh, swap names. And of course, there's so many new faces. This morning at our prayer meeting, we realized that all of us only came to this church in the last year at that particular prayer meeting. So, you know, I don't know what to say. Just go up to someone and say, I, I don't think we've met before. <laughs> How long have you been coming? Uh, and uh, get the conversation going from there. And, and then, you know, it's cool that God's given us this venue, He's given us that venue. But let's not forget that so much of the church is what happens between Sunday meetings and relationships being built. And um, you know, I think that it, 
that, that God can add to us to the degree that we can add people to our personal lives. I'm not like you, but Julie and I often feel relationally saturated. We've got so many friends by now in our lives. We've been living in the city a long time. And a lot of those friendships are actually suffering because we haven't seen those people for a long time. It's like, we don't have space for new people in our lives. We, we feel like we're letting other people we've had for a long time. I'm saying this out of honesty. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people feel like this. If you're new to the city, you don't have this problem. You know, you've got all this relational capacity. But I suspect that if God is putting us in this church, it's because He wants us to create yet more space in our lives for new people. Yeah. And um, I've made so many new friends in this church. And I encourage you to do the same. And, uh, you know, let God bless the friendships you've already got. But how cool if you make some new friends. And then, of course, one of the easiest ways to, to really say, yeah, we're building community is that we're opening up our homes to each other. And uh, in February, we're going to start, uh, we call them nightclubs, which is the name for small groups in, in Signal. We just, you know, small groups just sound so bad. Much like it sounds like something cool, it's actually named by a kid whose parents were going out another Wednesday. Are you guys going to nightclub again? That's, that's how the name it took. So we're going to start those up again. And let's get into each other's homes. Let's get into each other's lives. And um, let's make space in our lives for new people and to deepen these relationships. And um, there are lots of new people God is going to be adding to our church. Let's get ourselves ready by opening our hearts wide to these people. And I'm right near the end of my message. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. The reason we know that God is humble is because Jesus is humble. The reason we know that God has a passion for people is because Jesus has got a passion for for people. The reason we know that God is very interested in getting good ideas into your brain and my brain is because Jesus was very interested in getting good ideas into, your, into the brains of the people listening to him. He is the image of the invisible God. The reason we know that God is a savior who reaches down into your life and does for you what no one can do for you and what you can't do for yourself is that's precisely what Jesus did. I remember hearing a story, first city I ever went to in my life outside of South Africa was Rio de Janeiro. My dad recommended that's the first place I go. He died when I was 16. And I went. What a gorgeous city. But you quickly realize that there's you know, the affluent uh, part of the city and then there's the, the underbelly of the city. I remember hearing a story about Christina, who uh, lived outside of Rio de Janeiro and grew up in a poor family. She was drawn to the bright lights and the party atmosphere of this famous city. And her mother warned her not to go. Unemployment in the city was high. Strip joints and brothels were just about the only places offering jobs to young women. But Christina knew better. One day she packed her bag, secretly took off to the city. And uh, one thing leads to another. The next thing, she is employed in a brothel. And uh, we don't know that at this stage of the story. The mother certainly does it. But the mother is heartbroken and traverses the streets of Rio de Janeiro and, you know, for days, weeks, months, can't find her daughter anywhere. And then eventually realizes she must get on with her life and go back. And what she does is she takes photos of herself and sticks them up on every single wall that's got an open place. Every alleyway to a brothel, every, you know, street where there will be pictures up. And on the back of the photo of herself is Christina, it doesn't matter what you've done, come home. 
And uh, years later, Christina is summoned down an annual. She's at the end of herself. And uh, she has been used and abused. She knows she can't go back home because of what she's done. She's brought dishonor to the family. She's made a wreck of her life. And then she finds the image of her invisible mom, the photo, and the message. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The gospel is telling the world, describing in words, what God is like. Look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at his ministry. Listen to his teaching. Look at his miracles. Look at the way he treats individuals. Look at the way he handles crowds. Look at his death. Look at his resurrection. And you get the message. It doesn't matter what you've done. Come yeah. home, Lord. Yeah. The cross especially sends a message of God's passion for people. In fact, the word the passion comes from the Latin word, I think, cassio, which means the agony. You, you may know Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion of the Christ, the agony of the Christ. But I think it serves as a double meaning. What drove Jesus to the cross was precisely his passion for people. On the cross, he was doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this passion for people is precisely what will energize single church into what feels like a very exciting future in our ministry to the city of Cape Town.